Hey babe, did you know that using a great alternative light source doesn't cost a billion dollars or look like a suitcase anymore? Surely that's not true, but if you can give me more information, I'll be inclined to believe you. Well now, you can get a pocket-sized blacklight from Taction USA that works just as well as a large ALS, an alternative light source. It works so well, you'll never go back to any other ALS. It's lightweight and literally fits in your pocket. Made out of aluminum, so it's durable, it will last you a lifetime. You can find the professional blacklight at TactionUSA.com for $29.99. Ships quickly, and your order comes from Taction USA's Amazon store, so it's easy to order. Taction USA is run by law enforcement for law enforcement. You should check it out today and get yours. Get yours right now, today, at TactionUSA.com. Welcome to Crossing the Tape, a true crime podcast with your hosts, I'm Hillary. I'm Brendan. So sign the crime scene log and join us for this next story. Which, guess what? Hmm. We're back to murder. Yeah. And we took we, a little break. We took a break. But the bodies keep stacking up. Right. We right. gotta talk about these cases. <laughs> Shouldn't laugh at that, but... No, no, it's really awful of us. I know. But it's who we are. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> No, fortunately. Without further ado, death. On June 11th, 1986, bank manager Susan Snow, a 40-year-old woman living in Auburn, Washington, woke up with a headache and took two Excedrin capsules to ease the squeeze on her brain, if you will. These capsules were extra strength, but they turned turned out to be a bit stronger than Miss Snow wanted. Mm. Her husband, Paul Webking... I don't know why nobody takes anybody's last name in this story. There's married people, and <laughs> nobody's got the same last name. I, but... I think you'd be pretty hurt if I didn't take yours. Exactly. I think you'd be pretty hurt if I didn't take yours. That's why we have hyphenated both of our names together. No, we haven't. I know. We're very traditional. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how every couple talks about murder. Paul Webking, the husband of Susan Snow, also took two of the same pills that morning, capsules rather, for his arthritis pain, and then he headed off to work. Susan continued her morning routine while she waited for the Excedrin to kick in and take the pain away. A short time later, Snow's teenage daughter stepped out of the shower to finish getting ready for school. By then, Mrs. Snow was no longer feeling any pain. Susan Snow was unconscious on the bathroom floor, and 911 was called. Though Susan was rushed to the nearest hospital, she was pronounced dead in a matter of hours, despite the best efforts of doctors who rushed to determine her affliction and how to reverse it. The sudden and inexplicable death, of course, resulted in an autopsy. And during that autopsy, one of the medical examiners noted a distinct aroma emanating from the body of Susan Snow. Bitter almonds. Mm. Gross. Any Agatha Christie reader will know what that means. Yes. Poirot. Mm. I think it's more in the Miss Marples. Mm. Poison. Mm -hmm. That stench was a telltale sign of cyanide. And with that knowledge in mind, Snow's sudden loss of consciousness and quick death made sense. She died of cyanide poisoning. Now, the death of Susan Snow had a two-pronged effect. First, it painted a target on the back of her husband, Paul Webking. You always look at the spouse first. Always. And that's... 
usually who it is. Majority, but not always. No. Sometimes people can just be senselessly murdered by a stranger. But a lot of crimes of passion in the married world. Well, especially when they die at home. Yes. Yeah. Well, they died at home, no forced entry. I don't know. Well, Mm -hmm. come on. Uh, Web King and Snow had only been married for a matter of months, and his demeanor was a little too cool given the circumstances, at least according to Susan's family. When he learned of her condition, he headed down to the hospital and made the decision to remove Susan from life support. And that upset members of Susan's family, and of course, it was speculated that, well, if Paul was the one who poisoned his wife, He would want her dead as soon as possible, just in case her condition improved and she was able to tell everybody what happened to her. Right, but it didn't go, none of the research went into detail of her actual condition, did it? Uh, No, she was pretty quickly. All ready for a gun? Yeah, the poisoning was very effective. Okay, then that would be the humane thing to do. Yeah. But again, speculation also, from right. grieving family members, people would be concerned right. that, well... I see, I see their point as well. Yeah. If he if he did it, he doesn't want her talking if there's any risks. No, right. take her off life support right away. Right. But if you're on life support and there's an option to cut it off, it's probably a grave enough situation right. that there's no going back. Infidelity had uh, already been an issue in their relationship. Susan suspected that Paul was still involved with an ex-girlfriend, even after he confessed to sleeping with her while he was out of town, but promising to end the affair. He wasn't going to. End the affair? Yeah. That's a bunch of you-know-what. It's rubbish. (laughs) But he did admit that while he was on a a long-haul truck drive, as he, as was his occupation, he just happened to stroll through his old hometown and run into, oh, look who it is. Mm-hmm. And granted, sure. this is 1986, so could you? you're not, yes, very good year. <laughs> you're not sending a text to an old flame saying, hey, no. if, if you're still around, meet me at you're whatever bar. You're going out of your way. Did he send a letter mm-hmm. weeks ahead of time that he he's going to be there? He probably called on a payphone. That's true. Anyhow, uh, Susan suspected that Paul was still maybe messing around with her. And there was speculation that their marriage was pretty quickly going to come to an end because of that. Now, while in town for the funeral, Susan's twin sister, Sarah, popped into her late sister's medicine cabinet for a few Excedrin, and noticed the bottle was capsules, not tablets like she and her sister normally purchased. Because I guess they were familiar with each other's hmm. tablet habits. <laughs> but the decision to switch to capsules was apparently Paul's. Sarah thought this was a little odd, given events that took place in 1982, and we'll give you more on that soon. After those events... The Snow sisters both agreed not to purchase any sort of medication in capsules. Mm -hmm. And luckily, because of those capsules, it made Sarah a little weary. She decided to forego them. Very lucky. Yeah, she dodged a big bullet. After the autopsy was conducted, a murder investigation kicked off, and a search for the poison took place in the Snow Web King home. And that search determined... 
The bottle of extra strength Excedrin contained traces of cyanide, including three additional cyanide-laced capsules. So in the moment, Sarah didn't know how close she came to death before she went, mm, now I'll just, I'll get some tablets later instead of these capsules. That information further nudged Paul into the prime suspect spot, given he also took Excedrin, but he was cyanide-free for some reason. Hmm. Now, the second effect of Susan Snow's death was much more broad. National panic. When word got around that a woman died from consuming poison medication, the headlines were all too familiar. It appeared the terror that struck Chicago in 1982 had come to the Seattle area. On September 29th of 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman abruptly died after taking extra-strength Tylenol in a capsule. The same day in another Chicago suburb, Adam Janice took the same medication and suffered the same fate. Two more of Janice's family members eventually took capsules from the same bottle and died as well. An additional three victims throughout Chicago died after taking extra-strength Tylenol. Yikes. Yeah. The link between that particular type of Tylenol and the deaths was apparent. An investigation determined several bottles of Tylenol sold in the area had been laced with cyanide. Hmm. Investigators checked the lot numbers on the bottles and found, well, they came from different factories, so they hadn't been poisoned until they arrived on Chicago store shelves. To date, no one's ever been charged for those poisonings. Hmm. Although... One man tried to take responsibility for the crimes and earn himself an extortion charge for his troubles. Would you like to hear about that poor fellow? Sure. Uh, I believe he was in New York. Uh-huh. And he sent a letter to the uh, Tylenol parent company. <clears throat> Is that Johnson & Johnson, maybe? I think so. Uh, he sent a letter saying, I am the poisoner, and I will continue unless you send me $1 million. That was dumb. Yeah. So he got an extortion charge, but there was nothing to actually indicate he was the guy. No. He just saw an opportunity to make a million dollars and was stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he ended up serving several years for not being, doing anything except sending being, a really dumb, being a fool. A dumb letter. So folks, please don't try to extort anyone taking credit for murders. No. If there's one thing we've taught you here, don't do it. No. Now, the Chicago Tylenol murders may have been unsolved, but they did result in major changes to medication manufacturing in order to make tampering more difficult and far more apparent. The Food and Drug Administration also pushed through a bill which required tamper-evident packaging on all medications and made it a felony to tamper with medication. You know, and it's good that they have that tamper-evident packaging, but even I can't get into it half the time. I'm stabbing bo- pill bottles with scissors. <laughs> I'll see. I don't have any fingernails. <laughs> I can't open those things. And if you ever buy one that's been pre-stabbed, you know something's up. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> but yes, it's, I guess that's the point, but it's still... I know. But I, every time... I need an ibuprofen. I don't want to fight. Every time I, I get <laughs> I a little struggle. frustrated, I'm like, no, I'm glad that this is here. It's for a reason. I'm and confident it... this won't kill me, mm-hmm. but I just want to throw the thing against the wall. I know. Or those caps that just, they just keep spinning. Yeah, the one... Where are they going? (laughs) (laughs) 
you press not down where on the I child want them to, and it just spins like a helicopter. <laughs> the headache's getting worse. And suddenly, I feel five. It's <laughs> all right. I have a hard time with those sometimes. If you turn the bottle upside down and press it into the counter and then spin it, you'll make a mess. I was about to say that. <laughs> that sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> so that but like that way you can get idea. the leverage on it. The leverage. But before we continue, we want to pause and hear a word from our friends at the Murder and Mimosas podcast. Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. Together, as a mother and daughter duo, we host Murder Mimosas, true crime podcast with an episode released every Saturday at 10 a.m., so you can listen to it during prime brunch time. While we don't require a mimosa, we do highly recommend one. All of our episodes are cases that we found really interesting or just really stuck with us because we hope they'll do the same for you. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, jumping back to 1986, Seattle. Fears grew that the same madman from Chicago, laid low for a few years, relocated and had resumed his killing spree. Mm. And that fear was magnified when a second victim was discovered. Mm. Oddly, though, this victim died before Susan Snow, but his death wasn't attributed to cyanide-laced Excedrin until after Snow's death. Mm. His name was Bruce... Bruce... Nickel? Nickel. I think it's just nickel. Nickel. We'll say nickel. I, it's two L's, but... Yeah, I just... I've, I've been mm. saying nickel. Yeah, I've been going back and forth when I say it in my head. Anyway, Mr. Dime... No, Nickel. Bruce Nickel. He died on June 5th. He collapsed in his home after taking four extra strength Excedrin and was found by his wife, Stella, who called 911. Bruce was soon pronounced dead, and his cause of death was listed as natural attributed to emphysema. After the death of Susan Snow, however, Stella contacted the authorities and provided them two medicine bottles. Both contained traces of cyanide. And by now, scientists were hard at work analyzing the capsules amidst massive recalls from Excedrin. Yeah, that had to be really bad for business. I would imagine. But uh, with the Tylenol murders... In 82, Tylenol suffered major losses because, you know, recalls right. and people thought, you know, well, don't buy Tylenol, you'll die. Mm-hmm. But because of the way they handled it and the proactive changes they made and mm-hmm. everything, they actually, they handled it the best they could. And it right. really worked in their favor. They, <clears throat> That's why the public the... perception of them turned around yeah. major because they took so many precautions to make sure that never happened again. Right. Well, those big corporate companies, they have a lot of damage control teams. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Among the recalls, two more poison bottles were found in stores in the same area and also turned over for examination. So this totaled five bottles. Hmm. Two that Stella and Bruce had. Right. One that Susan and Paul had. And then the additional two that were still in stores. Aside from the medication and cyanide, each tainted capsule also contained something else. 
But that's a conversation for next episode. For now, please sign the crime scene log and join us next time. I'm Brendan. And I'm Hillary. So long. Stay safe. Wait, don't leave yet. We have one more thing. If you are looking for a career change or to expand your knowledge in an already established one, look no further than the National Investigative Training Academy. The National Investigative Training Academy, or NIDA, N-I-T-A, has well over 100 courses with 70 professional development ones alone. NIDA is constantly adding to their course catalog, and courses are focused on private investigation and security fields. Whether you would like to become a private investigator or you need continuing education for your investigative or security career, the National Investigative Training Academy is for you. All courses offered are 100% online and do at your own pace. Once completed, you will receive a certificate in that course. Sign up today at investigativeacademy.com. Make sure when you sign up for your courses, you mention we sent you there. We encourage you to get the best investigative and security training possible today. When you sign up, mention our brand ambassador code, BA2367. That's BA2367. And you can find those courses at investigativeacademy.com. Look for links in our show notes as well.